So Genesis 9, perhaps if you follow business stuff, you saw an interesting study that came out this week. It's called the CEO Genome Project. And the idea behind it was real simple. What makes a good CEO? And there are some startling, I think, personally, things this study has discovered. And it was thousands of CEOs they interviewed, they talked to, boards, pretty extensive study. The first was this. They found that introverts make better CEOs than extroverts. Extroverts, they found, do much better in the interview process, but are actually terrible CEOs. I don't know why. Maybe the introverts study more or think more or process more. No one's quite sure about that one, but they found people that tend toward being an introvert actually make much better CEOs. Uh, They found there was a zero correlation between Ivy League schools and good CEOs. I love that. Forget Harvard, go to RCC. It does not matter. You just have a lot less money to pay back. And then they found this. Roughly half of really good CEOs have had in their past a major, major blow it point. Bankrupt the company, lost a lot of money, just really, really bad decision. And they've overcome that, and then they become very good CEOs. I love that last one. Makes a few of us perfect CEOs. Like, man, I have not gone to Harvard. (laughs) I'm an introvert. And I've totally blown it a lot of times. Apple, here I come, right? (laughs) But it reminds me, maybe the reason why they do so well is um, Thomas Edison was asked once by a reporter, I've heard that you failed to invent the light bulb a thousand different ways. And his immediate comeback was, oh, no. I've discovered a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. I think it might be that attitude that, that, hey, no, this is all good. It all has a point. It's all moving me somewhere. Um, I'm going to take a mulligan on that, but I'm going to tee back up and go for it. For me, chapter nine is that. It's teeing back up. It's a reboot of creation. And if you were here last Wednesday, The reboot does not actually begin in chapter 9. It begins in chapter 8, verse 20. That's the reboot. And perhaps you remember what happened there. Noah, God opens the ark. Noah gets off the ark. And what is the first thing that he does? He builds an altar and makes a sacrifice. He praises. If you get nothing else from the flood narrative... Get this. You want to reboot in life? You want to get back on track? It begins by praise. That's where it begins. And here's why I would say that. Last week, I had a very long conversation with a lady. She doesn't live in town here. She lives out of town. She wanted to talk to me. She's in some theology classes at a university up north, and she's trying to process through new information. How do I integrate this? What does this mean? And so just talking, talking, talking. And she asked this question. She said, she said well, okay, fine. What is sin then? My answer, sin is idolatry. 
That's where sin begins. It's where you make anything in your life other than God most important. And once you have made that decision, then sin always follows because you have to protect your new God, right? So I've given this example, my example of little white lies. You guys remember that? Of course not. I have to do it again. Okay, fine. I've confessed it, repented of it. I'm trying to change. Here's, here's what will happen to me from time to time. Someone will come up to me in church and they'll say, hey, Matt, remember when you were gonna get me that book or get me that article you said a month ago, three months ago, six months ago, you're gonna get it for me? And remember that? My answer will be, oh yeah, totally. Books in the mail. If I'm honest, I've completely forgotten about it. I've probably forgotten their name. I don't even know the conversation at that point, right? But I don't want to say that. You know why? Because I want people to believe that I'm a good, loving pastor. And so I've made that an idealized, almost idol in my mind. And I think if I could just be this, then my life would be awesome. And so when that's threatened by forgetting somebody or not remembering a book or whatever it is, when that's threatened, what do I do? I sin by lying to protect my God. Every sin begins with an idol. So when Noah gets off the ark, the first thing he does is, I'm making sure and praise the only one who is God. See, praise puts God back where he belongs, number one. So that's how this reboot begins with praise. God is number one. Now we get into chapter nine and we see kind of the steps, how to step this reboot out. Chapter nine, verse one. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. There's a reboot, but there's some major differences now if you compare chapter one to this chapter right here. And some people argue it's because the ecology has changed or society has changed or sinfulness. I don't know why, but here are the differences. Number one, God blesses Noah, verse one, and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound like chapter one? Yeah. You've got chapter one, verses 26 through 28. God says to Adam and Eve back there, first creation, be fruitful and multiply. What's missing this time though? God leaves something out. He'd given a mandate to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. 
He does not repeat that here. Why not? Because they'd already blown it. Chapter three. They were supposed to subdue Satan. Instead, they settle on his lies. They can't do it now. So God's promise in Genesis three is somebody else has to come and this seed of the woman, he will crush the serpent's head. Now Adam and Eve, sons of Noah, descendants of them, you can't do it anymore. Jesus has to come and crush the serpent's head. This job is out of your reach which I think is very important for us to think through because certain sides of Christianity can be like, we're gonna stomp Satan's head in. No, you're not. Jesus does that. He's the serpent crusher. That job, Adam and Eve forfeited it. So that's the first difference. Second difference is, verse two says this, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. The animals now, in the garden, the animals come up to Adam, he names them. There's some kind of cooperation. I almost think of it like a family, like the animals and humans, pre-flood, they got along really well. Now that's changed. Now animals fear humans. Even the scary ones fear us, you know that? I'll give you my best example of this. Back in the School of Ministry, uh, back in 1998, we did this hike. We hiked from Foster Bar up to Graves Creek. I have no idea why we went upstream. Usually you go downstream because it means every day you're going downhill. But for some reason, Jim Wright said, no, we're gonna go up. So we're hiking up. The first night we camp at this place and there's this young man, he was 18. His name was Matt Nicastro, straight out of Southern California. Surfer, surfer haircut, talk like a surfer, never camped in his life. You know, he's just like, what are we doing? So it's raining. I had this tarp set up. I'm like, dude, come underneath the tarp. Come with me. Sleep here. So he sleeps with me. In the morning, we wake up to this grunting sound. I look out through the bottom of my tarp, above my toes. There's a black bear right there. So Matt DeCastro, straight out of Southern California, never camped the day in his life. Is like, ah, what are we going to do? I looked at that bear and I said, bear, go home. Go home, bear. It looked at me, turned around, and ran away. <laughs> to which Matt DeCastro said, can you do that? I said, oh yeah, the bears in, Grand in Southern Oregon are trained that way. <laughs> the sad story is the next year when he's camping by himself, he's eaten by a bear. I'm totally kidding. I mean, come on. <laughs> There's still a dread, even in scary animals, of humans. So things have changed. George Whitfield said about this text, he said it like this. Have you noticed when you walk, if you don't know who George Whitfield is, learn who he is. He is an incredible preacher from the Great Awakening. He's, he's unbelievable. So George Whitfield said, have you noticed when you walk by a dog, it growls at you? When you go by a bird, it screeches and flies away from you. When you walk by the deer, they run for you, from you. Do you know why? He said, because every animal knows you've had a quarrel with their master. I love that. They all know you've had a quarrel with their master. So God says, things are changing. Before there was this kind of community thing, animal and human, it's gone now. Now they're gonna fear you and they're gonna run from you. So then verse four follows right on it. Part of the reason they're going to fear you, because you're going to eat them. <laughs> it 
that they're gonna wanna get away from you. In Genesis 1, verse 29, they ate vegetables and that was it. Here, verse three, verse four, is God saying, you now can eat animals. But in the middle of this, he makes this little comment. You cannot eat it with its blood or with its life. That is its blood. So there's a hang up sometimes in Christian circles on kosher food. Can you eat your steak rare? Is this prohibiting it right here? It's developed later on. Blood becomes very important in the laws, the Levitical laws. They create a clean space. There's a whole reason behind that. I don't want to dive into that. But there's a Jewish commentary I love. It's by a guy named Sorna. He says this. He says, what this meant back then was this. You could not eat the leg of an animal while it was still alive, right? You couldn't like hack off the hindquarter of an animal and be like, hey, you're fine with three legs and then eat part of it. Or you could not kill an animal and as it's dying, drink its blood. That's what he believes this is saying. And I kind of tend to agree with him. Um, I, I traveled for, met one a lot of places when I was an engineer, went to a bunch of countries, about 30 countries. And so I ate every kind of food in the world. Like, I don't mind eating anything. I'll eat dog, I'll eat cat, I don't care. I'll eat it once and then decide, mm, I don't know if I'll eat that again. So um, in China, I made a couple of mistakes. We went into this restaurant and you go into these restaurants and sometimes they'll, they'll have live animals in there. And so I go into this restaurant for lunch and I look over, there's this bowl and it's full of cicada beetles, probably 200 of them or so. Do you know what a cicada beetle is? It makes that screeching sound. It's 104 decibels. It's extremely loud. Um, they're a long ways away and they're still loud. So I go to this bowl, they're all quiet. And I just thought they must be dead. So I tap the side of this metal bowl. Well, all 200 of them decided to make a noise right then. Every person in that restaurant just went, I'm like, uh-oh, guess what I got for lunch that day? A pile of cicada beetles. They just assumed, oh, you must like those. We'll order those for him. They're actually very, very delicious. One of the better things I've eaten. Yeah, nutritious too. So I fly from there, I go to Taiwan. In Taiwan, I walk into this restaurant, it's a night, and it looked like an, a, a giant aquarium store. There's just cages of animals and then just glass aquariums all over the place with all kinds of fish and stuff in them. I looked at this one and I, was in, I lived in Vanuatu for a year and there was this giant, I call them a New Caledonia crab, but it's actually just this giant prawn. They're huge, they're like 18 inches long. I'm like, whoa, man, look at that thing. Guess what I got? But this time, that giant prawn was brought out on a big piece of ice. Its back had been kind of opened up, you know, and then all the meat in it was chopped up so you could grab it with your chopsticks. But it was brought out on this piece of ice with its head intact, and guess what? It was still alive. Yeah. I did not like that. So literally, they're grabbing pieces. I mean, it was like everyone ate it. Grabbing, and, and as you're grabbing a piece of it, it with this antenna is feeling you bring it to your plate. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. So I agree, <laughs> don't eat an animal while it's still alive. I think that's probably more what it's meaning. 
Because what you'll see out of a lot of paganism is there's all kinds of stuff like that. Eat the heart while the animal's still alive. Drink the blood because you get its life force. So this right here is God saying, no, don't do any of that weird stuff. Just enjoy a good barbecue. That's all, just come on, enjoy a good barbecue. Don't get into all that weird stuff. Just enjoy a filet mignon. And I think that's right. The next thing is this. And we talked about this on Sunday if you're here. Life, human life versus five and six because, becomes of infinite value. And God actually says, if a beast kills a man, I will reckon it from that beast. Now, how God does that, I'll just leave it up to him. I don't know, but it's that serious. Human life has that kind of infinite value. And for me, the way I kind of check my heart, do I see humans as infinitely valuable? Here's one of the barometers that I have personally. It's this simple test. Do I rejoice when other people are image-bearing God well, successful, showing his power, showing his glory, doing wonderful things. Do I rejoice in that or am I envious of it? There's one of my big barometers because when I'm envious of it, what I am saying is, I wish I had that glory for myself. When I am rejoicing in it, then guess what happens to you? If you can rejoice in other people's success, imagine how your joy is multiplied. If you rejoice when people like mirrors, I said, we're supposed to see these mirrors reflecting back to God, his glory. But too often we turn on ourselves and we become super dim and selfish and small. If we can rejoice when people are reflecting God and reflecting his glory back to him, imagine the joy you can get. Not just your own joy, your joy is multiplied thousands, millions, billion fold. That's what God wants. Rejoice. They're all image bearing me. We're all supposed to be these lights, these, these incredible mirrors reflecting back to God. When you can do that, man, that's awesome. When I don't, when I'm envious, it makes me small. It makes me feel just terrible. That's my barometer. I know I'm treating people as image bearers when I rejoice, when they bring glory to God, when they reflect that well. So that's this first section. This is the reboot. Now, God makes a covenant. It's this incredible covenant. We'll do it pretty fast. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters 
shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This covenant is unilateral. It's God saying, I'm making it and I will keep it. It's unconditional. It's not, hey, if you guys obey or if you keep these rules or if you follow me or if you walk with me, there's no condition on it. It's God saying, this is a unilateral, unconditional covenant that I am making. It's also universal. It's not just to the Jewish people, it's to all people and it's everlasting. I will never flood the earth again. Maybe you picked this up, maybe you didn't, but notice something. Verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you. It is, end of verse 10, it is for every beast of the earth. Verse 12, and for you and every living creature that is with you. Verse 15, every living creature of all flesh. Verse 17, and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the only covenant in the entire Bible that God makes with animals. So God in this covenant says to the created order, I will not destroy you either. It's interesting. Does God love his creation? I think so. As God makes in each day in Genesis 1, he makes the birds and what does he say? It's good. He makes the fish in the sea and what does he say? It's good. He makes the animals that run across the face of the earth. And what does he say? It's good. I think God loves his creation. He loves the squids. He loves the giant prawns. He likes the kangaroos and the salmon and the trees. God loves his creation. I believe that as humans, our sin does minimally two things. I think it actually does more, but it does minimally two things to the creative order. Number one, it harms them. You can read Paul in Romans chapter eight, verses 18 to 22, where he talks about all creation groans and travails. Every animal right now is actually subject to vanity or emptiness and corruption. And the entire creative order is actually waiting for you and me to get back to the way we're supposed to be when they will rejoice. There, there's this agony right now that they're in because of humans. So we harm them. And then number two, we hinder them. Listen to all these texts. Psalm 96, first one. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before Yahweh, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. Is that hyperbole? Or when Jesus returns, will trees sing? I don't know. 
Psalm 150, the last Psalm says this. Last verse of the last Psalm. Let everything that has breath praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Is that hyperbole? Or is everything that has breath, is it supposed to praise God? One final one, Revelation chapter four. Chapter five, excuse me. Verse 12, it says this, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might to honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Pretty descriptive there, right? I'll read it again. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the mole, the naked mole rat, whatever, the earthworm, and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It seems to me that right now our sinful state is actually hindering creation. And Revelation seems to point to a time when the entire universe becomes a Disney movie, right? All the animals sing. That's coming, right? The bugs, the hyenas, the monkeys, they're all singing. Your annoying neighbor's dog is singing, right? Even in the sea. So dolphins, we know dolphins are really intelligent and they kind of had this communication. What are they saying? Worthy is the lamb. I know what they're saying. They're saying worthy is the lamb. And one day their voices will be heard again. It's why if you read C.S. Lewis's stuff, even Tolkien, that they have this idea in there and it comes from those texts right there that animals right now are hindered by our sin. And one day they'll be set back the way it's supposed to be. Back to Genesis where things were, you know, Genesis chapter one and two, better. When I see all this, I say, God loves his creation. And so should I. That I should be a real careful steward of this beautiful world that God has given to me. Real careful with it. Yes, building stuff with it. Yes, using the raw materials well, but also knowing I'm a steward of God's creation. And he loves those animals. He says, those are good things and I should steward them just as well. And the sign of this covenant, we talked about this on Sunday, is a bow. The word often is used, it's, it's actually primarily used as a weapon. Now it's also a rainbow, shaped like a rainbow. But you see this bow again in the book of Revelation. And this time it is circling God's throne. Now, if you know Revelation, Revelation makes over 400 allusions back to the Old Testament. So why in Revelation do we see a rainbow appear again, this time around God's throne? I think there's a number of reasons. Number one is this. It's proving that God keeps his word. That's the last book. And guess what? No flood has destroyed the world. I said it 
and I've kept my word all the way to the end of history. Number two, when do you see rainbows? After a storm. A rainbow is signaling what? It's the end of the storm. The storm's over, right? Calm now. I think when you realize God's on the throne, that'll calm any storm. Are you kidding me? What do I have to worry about? God's on the throne. A rainbow's coming. I don't have to worry about this. I didn't think that's why. But maybe my most important reason is God's throne is called what in the book of Hebrews, chapter four, verse 16? It's called the throne of grace. That's the name of it. It's called a throne of grace. The rainbow tells me this. The rainbow tells me no matter what kind of storm I'm in, maybe my own sin storm, no matter what kind of storm I'm in, I can run to God and he will not be mad at me. That there will be a rainbow there to end my storm. That that throne is a throne of welcome for me, no matter what state I'm in. And then lastly, rainbows are beautiful, aren't they? They're beautiful. Did you see on Sunday how many rainbows there were? It was amazing. Like I finished, we finished cleaning up everything, had a ton of volunteers, it was awesome. And I'm driving home, there's a rainbow. I'm just like, praise God. Because Jesus took everything that I deserve into himself. And they're just beautiful. And it reminded me of this. Jonathan Edwards, maybe the greatest theologian America has produced. Some would argue that. He said this about Christians. How you kind of discern, like, am I a nominal Christian or am I, he called it, a true Christian? And what Jonathan Edwards said was this. Nominal Christians find God useful. Well, God's going to get me a wife. God's going to get me a career. God's going to get me money. God's going to get me out of jail for free. They find God useful. True Christians find God beautiful. And there's a massive difference. I think the rainbow is to get you and me to see God's beautiful. And when God captures your heart with his beauty, the rest of you follows no problem. And we're gonna find Noah actually needs all those things. He needs grace. He needs to know that God's in control. And he needs to know that God's on the throne because this last section is not so happy. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. It's gonna become a really important name in the Bible. These three were the sons of Noah and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Chapter 10 will explain that. Noah, verse 20, began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He curses Ham's son. He also said, blessed be Yahweh 
the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Do you see the parallel to Genesis 1 through 3? Creation, recreation, right? Out of the flood, out of the chaos of the deep sea. Um, beautiful covenants, be fruitful and multiply. Then there's a fall and a curse. They're parallel. Because I said, the problem with Noah's Ark is the animals got in there, the people got on there, and sin got on there. So we're seeing now this didn't fix the problem. Something else has to fix the problem. Noah, after a hundred years of faithfully building an ark, probably out of his own pocket, obeying God in a way that I think very few do today, waits in the ark, in this box with manure and urine piling up, and I don't know what they ate for that long, miserable, gets out of the ark, makes an offering and a sacrifice, like he's a stallion. And then, and then he retires and he goes south. To me, Noah is a massive warning. We as believers have to learn to run through the tape because we can be faithful for 100 years or 100 days or 100 months, but our enemy does not cease looking for opportunity to seize us and take us down. Noah doesn't finish strong. There's a guy who went through all the characters of the Bible and he found this, one in 10 finish strong. Most end up just like Noah or David or Solomon or Saul. The list goes on and on. Most fail, most stop, most cease. We gotta learn to run through the tape. For me, one of the codes or the alarm is this. Well, I used to, fill in the blank. I used to lead a Bible study. I used to share my faith. I used to be a missionary. I used to. When people say that, I always say, hey, that's great. What are you doing now? Man, that's great. 100 years of that. But what are you doing now? Because you have an enemy who is ceaseless and sleepless, who's like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Be very careful. What are you doing now? And Jesus says to a church that had lost its way, it's Revelation 2, church at Ephesus. He goes, I got one thing against you. You've left your first love. And he gives them three things they need to do. Remember from once you've fallen. Repent and redo your first works again. Don't be an I used to. Be a I am right now. To me, that's the lesson of Noah. So there's a bit of like, well, what happened right here? Before we get that, let me make one point, and it's this. If you look at Genesis 1 through 11, which is the first section, from chapter 12 on, it becomes about Abraham and his descendants. Who is the hero of the first, the, the main hero of the first 11 chapters of Genesis? Gotta be Noah, right? There's no one else that as much space is given to, he, he is the man in the first 11 chapters. And yet, he sins. 
I put it like this. There's trouble in every single family's tent. Just some are really good at hiding it. There is trouble in every single family's tent. So we can think, oh, look at those people. They're so good. They're doing so well. No, there's trouble in that tent too. They're just good at hiding it. You've got the hero of the first 11 chapters, and he's got major, major problems. I'm reading a book right now called um, Adam's Return. Uh, And in it, there's this whole section on mistakes. And the author puts it like this. He says, salvation is sin forgiven, not sin avoided. And then he goes on to say, if you look at goodness in the Bible, goodness in the Bible is mistakes overcome, not never perfection attained. There's no such thing as perfection attained in the Bible. I love that. It's, it's, what are you gonna do now? The book of Proverbs says this, that the righteous man will fall down seven times, but he'll get back up. It's not falling down that matters. It's what do you do next? Do you remember, repent, and redo Revelation chapter two? So there's this nakedness thing here. And there's curses and there's issues. What is it? Is the sin... Noah getting drunk, at this point in the Bible, getting drunk is not a sin. In fact, the Old Testament, it's hard to find where it says it's a sin. It over and over says it's stupid. You're an idiot. Read the book of Proverbs. Um, It looks at it always as there's a mistake if you get drunk, but it's not codified as sin until the New Testament. Um, I think all of us could agree getting drunk is dumb. I think Noah would probably agree with us as well, that you do things that you probably shouldn't do, right? So, so that's easy, but, but it's not like, hey, that's a sin, look out. Is it his nakedness? I don't, I don't know what, you know? We're all naked at some, you know, and we're covered with clothes. Um, Noah was covered by his tent, it's just his clothes were further away if you would, so I don't think that's a problem here. There's something else. And if you read commentaries on this, it gets crazy, One of the main reasons is because of the word nakedness and how it's used, especially a father's nakedness. Let me read for you how that's that's defined in Leviticus 20, verse 11. Listen to this. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall be put to death. So the way the Bible uses a father's nakedness is actually his wife. So that gets commentaries to be like, what in the world happened here with Ham? And the more you read, the weirder it gets. Some believe actually Canaan did it because twice it said Ham, the dad of Canaan. But because of the way things were related, the society at that time, if your son did something, Dad was responsible. Some say that. No one knows for sure. Did he have sexual relations with his mom? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, Did he go in and find his mom and dad intimate, drunk and intimate? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Something happens. I think it's more than just seeing his dad naked. I think it's worse than that. Um, What it is, I'm not sure. But I think here's the main point it's making. And it's mirroring what took place in Genesis 3. That fall with this fall. So notice something. Ham does some bad action. 
You can argue about what it is. It's bad, something bad. His son Canaan is cursed. He comes out. He tries to get his two brothers to participate in the same thing, but his two brothers won't participate. Ham is cursed. His two brothers are blessed. If you go to Genesis 3, Eve does a bad thing. She then goes to Adam and says, will you participate? Adam does, and they're both cursed. What the main point I think of this story is, is simple. There is a blessing when you do not participate in sin. There's a blessing when you say no to sexual sin, to drunkenness. There's a blessing when you do not participate. And there's a curse when you do. And I don't think we need much to explain that, right? Maybe five, six, seven, I don't know how long ago it was. I was teaching on a Sunday. And about midway through my message, a guy I had, I've known him for since 1990. He came walking in the back and stood right back there and I could see he wasn't doing well. And so after the service, I went back and I talked to him. He had a black guy and his face was kind of busted up. I said, bro, what happened to you? And he looked at me and he said this, Matt, please pray for me. Satan is attacking me. I said, hmm, okay. Um, Well, when did Satan attack you? And he said, oh, yesterday. I said, exactly what time did this attack by Satan happen? Like midnight. Ah, so where did Satan attack you? Outside the wonder blur. Hmm. So tell me, why would Satan attack you midnight Saturday outside the wonder blur? Well, I hit on some dude's girlfriend. I said, bro, that's not satanic. That's stupid. I said, listen, I am never worried about getting attacked by Satan at midnight outside the Wonder Blur because I don't participate in those things. Buddy, get away from that stuff. There is a blessing in non-participation. There is a blessing in staying away from garbage. That's the message from these three sons. No, we won't do that. We won't go there. We won't engage in that. We don't want nothing to do with that. And they're blessed. Blessed be Shem. Blessed be Japheth. Don't participate in sin. Romans chapter one even takes it further. It said that you get sucked in when you laugh and giggle at people that are sinning because it begins to suck you into the same stuff. Be careful. Do not participate in sin. What's well, strong? It's hard. Well, how did this reboot begin? Praise. I think when praise of Jesus is in its right spot, where it's supposed to be in your life, sin loses its savor. It loses its power on you because you're already full. How do you get away from sin? Man, start praising the one that deserves it. And what you find is great joy in the right things. And because you're full of joy already, Satan has no access to you. Edgewater, don't participate in sin. There's a curse. Be a non-participant. Praise Jesus 
and find fullness. So Father, even this night, I pray for those of us who like Cain in chapter four have sin crouching at our door. <laughs> and you told Cain, if you do what is right, you're gonna be blessed. And he didn't. I pray that your people here tonight who have been given new hearts and the power of your spirit would do what's right and stay away from garbage, that you would be our life, that our life would be hid in you, Colossians 3 verse 1, and we would be protected from the wiles of the wicked and evil one. So may we go from here, Lord, praising you, full of you, knowing that even as Psalm 16 tells us, you are better than life. Whatever we are believing would bring us life. You're better than it. Whatever idol we have put up in our mind, being a great pastor, being rich and powerful, whatever we have believed is life, Lord, may even this moment by your spirit, may we know Jesus is better. He's better than life. And may we praise you and be full of you. So protect us, Lord. And may we praise you. And I ask this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.